All right, we are back with Mexican Revolution Part 2. We left on um, a quote from Gilly. The Mexican Revolution was truly underway. Porfirio Diaz had taken the country from the 19th century to the 20th century over 26 or 30 years or whatever. The Porfiriato, it was called. He got his own he got a name for the whole era. Yeah. He got a name for the era. And now he's gone. And uh, he's in Paris and it's on. Where are we at? 1911, right? Yep. So we have a revolution led by a non revolutionary. <laughs> that, that what could work. go wrong? <laughs> yeah, that should work well. Yeah, Madero was a. I'm not even sure we can describe him as a revolutionary. Uh, he preferred nonviolence. He wasn't personally ambitious, and he trusted in democracy, maybe a little naively. Mm -hmm. uh, friends warned him of, of plots against him, and he answered, the people are not easily deceived. So he seems to have believed that the workers and, and the Indians were capable of self-government, and, and he expected the Mexican people to you know, uh, govern themselves. That but, is so interesting because, as you'll see, my reading of or Gilly's reading at least is different. I took it. No, it's not different. It's not different. It's the. It's basically that that Villa and Zapata had similar outlooks. There's this like decentralization, and the decentralization people always lose to the centralization people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, Madero seems to have been really quite naive like all we have to do is say okay uh we have democracy and everything will take care of itself uh th it's not what the mexican people are used to not after 34 years of rule from above right yeah church hierarchy landowner hacendado i mean it's uh pretty pretty top down <laughs> Yeah, and, and these guys don't have any experience being in government because Diaz certainly wouldn't have let them anywhere near it mm -hmm. and never shared responsibility. And then there's that, you know, story of how um, unprepared the Mexican people are for active democracy and, and the story possibly, probably apocryphal of, uh, you know, the cry, Viva la democracia. Uh, some thought it was a tribute to Madero's wife. Uh. <laughs> But we heard that in the uh, the Russian uh, uprising in 1825. So, I, you know, I don't it's a good story, but probably not true. So Madero is now uh, under attack from the left and the right. I don't know if this is a familiar situation in, in revolutions. It seems to happen all of the time. So the conservative reactionary forces are still very strong in the civil service. Uh, in the army, the, the defeated federal army, and of course you have the church. And Madero thought that he could win these groups over by good examples, by uh, strict respect for the law, and a broad spirit of conciliation. <laughs> Remind me, Madero's a lawyer, is he? <laughs> yeah, well. So he was attacked in Congress, uh, he was attacked in the press, and as a good Democrat, he refused to muzzle them. And this is 
<clears throat> you know, how many times have you seen this where a, a, a revolutionary regime comes into power and then they decide to play nice with the opposition? It does happen, right? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Oh, my gosh. Venezuela? Yeah. yeah. For a while, anyway. <laughs> And it doesn't help, right? Because the opposition well, no. never, never thinks you're cool. They never say, oh, what a stand-up guy. He didn't even repress us. They're just Yeah, like, he respects the law. We can work <laughs> with this guy. So he was criticized in Congress, criticized for being short, for loving his wife, for being a vegetarian with a weak stomach, for having a docile expression on his face, <laughs> for dancing. So it's a lot of man. He's not a manly man, I guess. No, he was also criticized for nepotism, you know, giving his family jobs. He was criticized for going up in an airplane. Oh. And then he was criticized for having imposed uh, a vice president on the country. And his vice president was criticized for being tall, (laughs) for speaking with animation, and for having a prominent nose. Wow. They are really uh, they're really getting right down to the substance of the of the issue here. Right. The the press were absolutely savage. One of uh, Madero's generals who failed to defeat a rebellion actually shot himself because he was afraid of what the papers would say. Wow. Yeah. I mean, well, I read we I read (coughs) you some stuff that was in the papers, but I not about Madero, but about Huh, what about Pancho Villa? Pancho Villa would not be shooting himself over what the newspapers say. He might be shooting somebody else. Yeah, yeah. So Madero tried to conciliate the, the defeated federal army as well. So instead of breaking it up, he tried to play nice with them. He nice. disbanded the revolutionary forces. Yeah. Now, he needed the army uh, to resist rebel generals who were now going their own way, like Pascual Orozco, another self-made general. And he needed the army to uh, possibly contain the left, like Zapata in Morelos. Let me just uh, let me just pause right there for one minute and and remi- and let readers, uh, I mean listeners, and you, Dave, remember the names Orozco and Zapata, because I've got a doozy of a story for you <laughs> later <laughs> when it comes up. Oh, okay, you're gonna save it for oh yeah, yeah. when it's t- yeah. all right. So <clears throat> Madero told the people, you do not want uh, uh, freedom. You only want freedom because you can use it to get bread. Mm. So this is all about bread. And he said this often. Uh, the source I read said that he wasn't indifferent to the grievances of the landless Indians, but he wanted to use, he wanted them to use legal means to prove that the lands had been illegally seized. Yeah, so the burden of proof is on you as the peasant to go get a lawyer and... Yeah, yeah this bring, is, bring this me not some unlike, documentary evidence that, you know... This is not unlike Canadian land claims, actually. <laughs> the the band, the band that's been totally, uh, you know, dispossessed of its land and any resources is supposed to hire a Toronto lawyer to argue with the government lawyer about whether their land is theirs or not. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder if Madero was actually that naive or is he doing this, you know, to appease the people who stole the land 
you know, the the uh, hacienda owners, or or is he trying to reconcile the conservatives? Like, don't worry, I'm not going to strip all of your land unless there's you know legal proof. And of course, this did not appeal to uh, Zapata, who saw this attitude as tremendously bourgeois. And who also saw anything beyond his own situation in Morelos as irrelevant. Yeah, local, local view. If there's, local no, view. if there's no legal land for the landless people, then they're going to have to seize the large estates. Yeah. So Madero went to meet Zapata before becoming president and had talks with him. Yeah, and they 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 ended up coming to some kind of an agreement, but at various points, the talks broke down. And uh, remember, Emiliano Zapata is the leader. He has a brother, and a, his brother is also very important uh, in the in the revolution. Eufemio, Eufemio Zapata. Right. And at various points, Eufemio was telling Emiliano to shoot Madero <laughs> on the spot. So <laughs> there's a quote from Eufemio: "This little man has already betrayed the cause, and he's too delicate to be head of the revolution." It would be better to break with him. He's not going to keep any of his promises. And Emiliano Zapata said, no, no, let's give him a chance. When he breaks his promises, we'll soon find somewhere to string him up. (laughs) Well, that might have to happen. Optimism and pessimism at work. (laughs) Well, however mild the agreement they made, uh, De La Barra's provisional government refused to honor that agreement. So the, the deal is broken, you know, not directly by Madero, but because he allowed the conservatives to stay in in power temporarily until the election, you know, they they blocked it. And Zapata believed that he had been deceived. He refused to disband his army. And the Southern Revolution broke out, uh, you know, only a month after Madero became president. Exactly. So uh, Gillies, in Gillies' words, Zapata drew the necessary political conclusion from Madero's rise to the presidency. Since Madero used his role as head of the revolution to call on the peasants to disarm and surrender, the task was to form another organized pole of power. This is what he put into practice by issuing the Villa de Ayala plan just three weeks after Madero became president. So... So the Ayala plan uh, is uh, all about land, all about land. So in, again, Gilly's words, it was to be the political expression of the nationwide peasant revolution, embodying Zapata's historical intransigence in the face of the bourgeois state and its three successive governments, Madero, Huerta and Carranza. Uh, the title of the plan in full, <laughs> you know, how, this is one of the most fun things about history is like all the titles of the documents. <laughs> the so long. ones. Liberation plan of the sons of Morelos state who fighting in the insurgent army seek to fulfill the San Luis Potosi plan, as well as further reforms considered beneficial to the Mexican uh, patria. <laughs> so that's the... Uh, that's the that's okay. the full title of the thing. We should we should name our podcast. We should come up with a good title for our podcast that's like that long. Okay. Um, so the land goes to people with the deeds. So they do keep this thing about the deeds. Remember last episode we talked about how important these historical yes. deeds that are sometimes 700 years old and written in the Aztec uh, language Nahuatl. Um, so the land uh, that goes to those with the deeds will be resolutely defended with arms in hand. Uh, and if you dispute that the peasants own the land, 
then you can go to a Zapata court <laughs> and dispute it there. <laughs> Good luck to you at that court. Um, if you're a big landowner, uh, you will be expropriated. You'll be paid one third of the value of the land and the citizens will get the land as collective land. Anyone who opposes this will um, be nationalized. So your land will be fully uh, taken, uh, not paid one third of the value. So that's... Uh, that's Zapata's land plan. It's very simple. It's very elegant. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's uh, what the peasants want. Yeah, and so. it flips the burden of proof, as you, as you point out. Yeah. Well, that's a challenge to uh, the agreement that he had with Madero. So Madero is now going to send the federal army to root out the Zapatistas. Uh, and gross. Madero's generals employed some time-honored scorched earth policies. Uh, burning villages, forcibly removing the inhabitants, and uh, drafting many men into the army or sending them to forced labor camps in in southern Mexico. But it's revolutionary this time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, all these actions do is strengthen Zapata's standing with the peasants. Yeah. There's also this thing about how Zapata (coughs) and Villa are bandits. And it's like, Mm. look at what Madero is doing in Morelos. And these guys are the bandits, right? So um, here's a little bit about... Gilly uh, talks a lot about, obviously, Zapata and Pancho Villa. Apparently, Gilly's book was like very pro-Pancho Villa before it was fashionable to be pro-Pancho Villa. Uh, Zapata's always been cool, I think, since... um, Who's that painter? Uh, Diego Rivera. You know, like that in the 20s, 30s, Zapata was was already like pretty cool, I think. Um, but VL a little bit less. So Zapata. Uh, after the Ciudad Juarez Accords we talked about last episode, uh, peasants disarmed. They went back to their haciendas and then they would be abused again by the owners of the land. So they would go, they disarmed, they duly disarmed, they went back to their haciendas, and then they got abused again, so they went back to Zapata. So Morelos is is Zapata's base, and it's one of the states, There's there are some reasons why Morelos was Zapata's base, right? It's one of the states with a lot of villages that remain outside the hacienda system. It's a sugar uh, it's a sugar pro like it's a sugar state, so it's a big sugar growing state with big plantations. So you know, um, in our Haiti and France revolution, we talked about how like CLR James talks about how the the sugar plantation is more like a factory than it is like a farm. So a worker in a sugar plantation is more like an industrial worker. You know, they've got the yeah. The clock, they're on the clock in a different way. They're, you know, they're expected to make these very precise moves. And, you know, there's 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 all kinds of things that are much more like a factory, like what you what you do. The next guy depends strongly on what you do. Plus, there's there's machinery for processing sugar and stuff, too. Right. So there's all these things. Um, and it's interesting because it just made me realize, like, the Cuban Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, and Morelos, they're all, like, sugar-growing areas that yep. have revolutions. So I think somebody should write, like, a article called, like, The Sweetness of Revolution or something. That's bad. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. So, 
Morelos has 24 sugar mills producing one third of Mexico's sugar output. So this one state produces one third of the sugar for Mexico. Um, and he, Gilly describes what it's like on an on a, one of these hacienda. An hacienda is basically like a huge plantation, right? Yep. It's the equivalent of the southern plantation. So the mansion has magnificent imported furniture, sumptuous European-style interior decoration, multi-hectare gardens, stables for polo and racehorses, and kennels for hunting dogs. So this gives you a sense of like the luxury in which the owner lives. And then, of course, the workers have their own quarters that are not <laughs> quite up to that standard. So traditional punishments for peasant resistance in the south of Mexico include imprisonment, deportation to Yucatan or Quintana Roo. These are like the wilder, these are like the wilder areas of Mexico, which are now tourist areas actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's pretty um it's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, it's it's not easy to survive there. So uh or you you might just uh be executed on the spot or or railroaded into some kind of execution. In 1909 uh, there's an election for the governor of Morelos, Patricio Eva, and he's in, in the opposition. He's against Porfirio. Um, he's railroaded out by violence. Uh, the police break up meetings, jail supporters, etc. So the regime candidate and landowner named Pablo Escandon wins with the help of the customary electoral fraud, in Gilly's words. So months later, in a small village named Anenequilco, Peasants meet in a general assembly, which is something they do traditionally. It's a peasant practice and an indigenous practice. And they elect their own. They do it in a clandestine meeting. And they elect Zapata, president of the communal council. He's 30 years old, September 12th, 1909. He's an old family from the area. Uh, his family fought in the independence wars, the reform wars. Uh, he's considered neither poor nor rich. And he's a bit of a horse whisperer. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so they call him uh, to all kinds of haciendas uh, when their horses, you know, to break horses or like when horses are having behavioral problems and they call him. He's he's known as he's kind of legendary in terms of his skill with horses. Um, he has an older brother named Eufemio uh, and he has a solid reputation among the local peasantry. He became, uh, in Gilly's words, a depository of the communal land deeds dating back to colonial times and beyond. In fact, Anenequilco was seven centuries old, and some of its papers were written in the Nahuatl language, which by 1910, only 10% of the Morelos population could actually speak. The land deeds are the theoretical basis for the revolution. They are material proof that legitimized recourse to armed insurrection. So um, in 1910, April, the peasants made a petition to this governor, Pablo Escandon, who had stolen the election. Um, since the rainy season is approaching, we poor laborers must begin to prepare the fields for our corn sowing. We turn to the state governor so that we may, we may sow these fields without fearing expropriation by the owners of the hacienda. The hacienda, in this case, being called the Hacienda del Hospital. So hacienda owners, what they do is they cleverly lease the land, lease the Ananequilco land to a different village to a different village. So they say, hey, villagers from this village of Ayala, come and come and plant your crops on Anenequilco's land. Um, so that's like setting one village against the other, yeah. right? Yeah. So Zapata comes back after doing some work 
as a horse whisperer <laughs> in September. He takes 80 armed men and goes to address the Ayala peasants who are working in the Ananiquilco uh, fields. And he says, listen, guys, we don't have a problem with you. Uh, we have a problem with the hacienda owner who leased this land to you. They don't have the right to do that. If you guys leave, we'll fight them, and that's how we'll resolve the problem. So they leave. The peasants do leave. They listen to Zapata. Um, Zapata, uh, you know, the government finds in favor of Ananiquilco, and the Ayala villagers are like, this guy, this Zapata guy is a stand-up guy. So now whenever there's a <laughs> village dispute, they call Zapata and he gets this band of armed men together and he would tear down the enclosure fences, distribute the land under the protection of his armed men and leave the peasants in possession of their plots. So this is working out pretty good. <laughs> so they get a conspiratorial group going in the village uh, via the Ayala. Um, and uh, they go and have a meeting uh, with Madero, and they support the San Luis plan in December of 1910. Um, but then, you know, they plan that insurrection. It doesn't work out, right? So Ma the local leader of Madero's movement gets uh, arrested right away before. So they get foiled. So Zapata is still at large, though. So the landowners and the government, they start arming themselves. Um, and they launched the insurrection in March 1911, March 11th. They immediately disarmed the police um, and they read uh, the San Luis plan to the people at the village. And uh, Gilly says most of the battle fit males were recruited there and then. And they were not chanting long live Madero or death to Diaz, but they were chanting down with the haciendas and long live the villages. And villages is pueblo in, in Spanish. Pueblo also means people. So it's a it's a more meaningful word than just villages. Mm. Um, federal troops attack and kill like the local leader. It's not Zapata. There's another guy named Torres Burgos who was like the figurehead a little bit. Um, and he gets killed on day three of the revolution. So they just elect Zapata. He kind of comes out from behind Torres Burgos. Um, and Zapata's strength here is that he knows what the struggle is about and why the peasants are supporting it, which is land, land, land. The three reasons the peasants support the revolution, <laughs> land, land, and land. Yeah. So, um, you know, the characteristic attack as described by uh, Gilly, uh, March 29th, 1911, in the Chinameca Hacienda. Zapata and his men burst into the precincts and made off with 40 savage rifles, the whole ammunition supply, and all the Hacienda horses. As Zapata proudly recalled in later years, the revolution always armed itself with guns and bullets captured from the Haciendas and Federal Army. Um he has several thousand men under his command within weeks. Okay, well, that answers uh, my question of how they were getting arms. Yeah, <laughs> the greatest store of arms is the enemy. Uh, remember, too, like this works really well when the army is, when the enemy is totally demoralized. And, yes. And it doesn't work so so well if they're very motivated and and know what they're fighting for and so on. Um, so May 20th. 1911, Zapata captures the town of Cuautla with 4,000 men. That's the same time as uh, the Ciudad Juarez Accords are signed and May 25th, uh, Porfirio relinquishes power. So the 
De La Barra government, as you just mentioned above, uh, tries to disarm the peasant forces. Zapata says, yeah, sure, we'll lay down our arms when the peasants get their land back. So they agree to, uh, they actually end up agreeing to a partial disarmament, which is <laughs> handing in their unusable or antiquated rifles, hiding or collectively storing the rest. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, <clears throat> Zapata for you. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Well, he's got a party. Uh, Madero never formed one, um, which is also a bit odd. But his brother, Gustavo Madero, did. And uh, he was immediately attacked by conservatives for his uh, violence. So good when huh. we do it, bad when you do it. <laughs> Isn't Madero attacked for nonviolence? <laughs> that too. That, that too. <clears throat> but they're two different guys, right? So yeah, yeah. you can attack one brother for nonviolence and the other for violence. The president's uh, supporters are actually dissatisfied very quickly when the revolution doesn't provide the rewards that they'd been expecting. Right. So, for example, the Vasquez Gomez brothers turned against Madero when the older brother was uh, not confirmed as his vice presidential candidate. I don't know why Madero did this, but he obviously gave them the idea that the guy was going to be VP, and then it didn't happen. Uh, Orozco, Pascual Orozco, was upset when he wasn't made uh, a general or a governor of a state. And then he was flattered by the landowners in Chihuahua province and launched his own rebellion in March of 1912. And then Felix Diaz, the nephew of the old dictator Porfirio, uh, tried to stage a coup in Veracruz in October of 1912, a pronunciamento. According to the uh, German ambassador to Mexico, who was friendly with officers in the Mexican army, the Diaz revolution has collapsed because of the incompetence of its leader. So (laughs) Felix's attempted coup uh, fails because of his own incompetence. And these rebellions are all put down, defeated, by the federal army and and the only one left standing is zapata in morelos so they've got to go get zapata now it's all about getting zapata um and <coughs> the press as as you mentioned uh is vicious uh gilly writes the bourgeois press launched a campaign for the forcible disarming of the zapatistas and for the reappropriation of lands already seized by the peasantry but um, in Morelos, Oaxaca, Guerrero, and other parts of the south, they're still continuing to oc- occupy haciendas and take them over. The revolutionary peasants supported Zapata's intransigent refusal to hand in the weapons, understanding that any other position would entail federal army repression and loss of the occupied land. So uh, Zapata's a consummate guerrilla warrior, so he doesn't, the army comes down, he doesn't do a big battle. He uh, leaves Cuautla, continues recruiting and arming, so that by September 1911, the whole of Morelos state was under arms. So now uh, Zapata uses territorial militias, which means there's no need for the barracks, professional army, and standing detachments. They pool their forces for big actions, and then they disperse. Each soldier was also a peasant who worked his land. When a joint action was concluded, they would usually go back home to work. They could walk a long way to do a big action, but then they could easily dissolve into the local working population at the approach of a superior federal force. 
there is a shortage of money, weapons, ammunition, all of which are acquired in battle with the enemy. They don't have any money anyway to buy bullets, or nor will anyone sell them bullets. Right. <laughs> At one point, there was a factory in Mexico City that was supplying arms on the, uh, you know, clandestine basis. But in 1918, a number of workers at the factory had been arrested and shot for such an activity. 1918 is late, though. Anyway, um, so what this means is in periods of what Gilly calls mass advance, this is in the, this such a force is indestructible. But in times of retreat, it's a source of weakness and fragmentation. And mm. it's also a political weakness because um it leaves the capital and the governing to the what what Gilly calls the weak and terrified bourgeoisie. So he quotes Lenin, who says, if the peasantry does not follow the workers, it will march in the toe of the bourgeoisie. There is not and cannot be any middle way. So that's another interesting um, point. I, maybe Mao would prove this wrong or maybe add some nuance to this, but that's what Lenin and Gilly <laughs> believes. Um, and so Zapata is trying to add some governance elements through the Ayala plan. There's the Zapatista peso. There's some revolutionary law. But really, in terms of a vision for the whole country, Zapata doesn't have it, right? No. So all over the south is up in arms. Morelos, Puebla, Guerrero, Tlaxcala, and uh, the District of Mexico. There are battles, daily battles between the Zapatistas and federal troops. Whenever they're in charge, the Zapatistas, they make the land reform. <clears throat> and when they're on their way somewhere, they make demands that the landowners should pay their peons at least one peso a day or prepare to face the consequences. U.S. Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson writes home in February 1912 that Zapata controls everything between Cuernavaca in Morelos and Chilpasingo in Guerrero. So if you look at a map, that's a nice big area. Um, he calls it an irresistible advance from 1912 to 1914, Gili that is, without having to fight any major battles. They don't hold on to towns and the federal army uh, is subject to typical guerrilla tactics of ha being harried and followed and harassed, right? Uh, a typical guerrilla tactic based on the unqualified support of the entire population. Now, in response, uh, Madero has uh, General Juvencio Robles to do scorched earth warfare, like you've said, uh, in Morelos. Mass shootings, whole villages were sacked or burned down. Any peasant suspected of helping the rebels was tortured along with his family. They have the strategic hamlets of the Boer War in the Philippines, herding village populations into larger centers and raising their homes. The peasantry responded to white terror and massive repression with an equally massive insurrection in which every child and grandparent also had a part to play. The Mexico City Press calls Zapata the Southern Attila. Uh, one article says under his barbaric socialism, hardly a single poor person uh, did not see his providence in the terrible rebel leader. That's kind of a compliment. In a way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they call for extermination <clears throat> and Mexico gets a $10 million loan from the U.S. for the war. Madero downplays Zapata's rebellion. He says, fortunately, this amorphous agrarian socialism, which, given the rough intelligence of the Morelos peasantry, can only take the form of mindless vandalism, has not found an echo in other parts of the country. <laughs> so it's like a, a scientifico, right? A kind of mm -hmm. an IQ. He turns it into an IQ thing. So the, there's a newspaper called El Imparcial. <laughs> That's a good name. Mm, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> always trust well there's no reason not to trust them they're impartial uh Maybe Emiliano Zapata has some vague communist forebodings, and he may, in his stupidity, even believe that his banditry is nebulously linked to apostleship. Such a conviction perhaps explains his attractive power for the masses. Without realizing it, he may be intuitively preaching an apocalyptic doctrine of disintegration and extermination under the false banner of some vague egalitarianism. So that's a lot of big words in there. Those are some three peso words in there. Eh? Very impartial. <laughs> Muy imparcial. Zapat, an editorial in the same newspaper called Zapatismo, The Mortal Danger, says this. Either the government puts an end to Zapatismo without delay or Zapatismo will eventually put an end to the government. Um, Zapatismo, it says, is in the air people breathe. It's rooted in every inch they tread. One does not require prodigious psychological insight in order to discover who the Zapatistas are and where they are to be found. Everyone who inhabits Morelos and Uves within the state boundaries is a Zapatista by sympathy, by fear, by convenience, by cowardice, by ignorance, by malice, by conviction, by subjugation, by weakness, or by atavistic rebelliousness. These are the Zapatistas. There they are. That's actually a great passage. <laughs> Again, I don't know if that's like supposed to be bad because yeah. <laughs> he has the support of everybody. We just don't like them. Um, here's a long quote from the same editorial, which is very, I, I want to read the whole thing because it talks about how the war proceeds, okay? So, it comes to the notice of an army unit that a band of Zapatistas has appeared in the vicinity, committing, as is their wont, all manner of outrages. The army immediately sets out for the place in question. What will it find? It finds a peaceful village, young men with spades in their hands, women bent over their grinding stones, the authorities trying to discover the whereabouts of the men who attacked nearby haciendas. Sad expressions, frightened looks. Where are the Zapatistas? Who are the Zapatistas? The Zapatistas have not moved. They are here. There they are. As in the old magic comedies, the stage decoration and accessories have changed, but the characters are the same. Rifles have turned into <laughs> spades, cartridge belt into spindles, a den in the garden, a bandit into a navvy. Just one thing remains fixed, transparent, beyond dispute. The attack and the robbery. What's a navvy, Dave? Laborer. Okay. In the end, only these saturated surroundings can explain a revealing and typical fact. Namely, the spontaneous generation of a large, tightly knit group of 2,000 Zapatistas near San Martin Texmelucan, who vanished overnight without leaving the slightest trace. How did they spring from nothing and return to nothing, these people whose exploits show them to be more real and tangible than nightmare phantoms? <laughs> they had bodies and made some use of them. If they have disappeared so completely, it is because they could merge with the crowd who creates and hides them like steam dissolving into the very water from which it originated. That's again. That's beautiful. <laughs> I don't endorse it morally, but that's that's pretty good. It's pretty good writing. So Madero says, um, you know, he tries to write back to the to El Imparcial to tell them like to relax, <laughs> and he's like, look, we, you know, um, we we're gonna um, we're gonna deal with Zapatismo. We're gonna deal with the land issue uh, through the law. We'll review all the land, <laughs> you know. Once we deal with Zapata, we'll we'll deal with the land question, um, judicial review, <laughs> and so on. So mm. Gilly says these are all petty fogging arguments uh, that that are you know that can't match the simple and stubborn grandeur of Zapatismo. Yeah. So 
but the conservatives are still busy and uh they have a new a new plan and a new a new leader in mind or a tool i, I mean it, it could be the same thing their their uh, their guy is going to be general victoriano huerta uh who is trusted by madero i mean of course madero trusts him madero trusts everybody <laughs> he is, no he's friend to everybody madero <laughs> so here's what gilly says about huerta before you continue he says the bourgeois have always cast huerta as the bad guy compared to all the other ones that were like really innocent and 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 kind <laughs> And he says, you know, and he's also, dr- you know, cast as a drunk. But mm. Gilly says, although his fondness for drink is well established, this was not his defining characteristic. He should be taken seriously as he was by the enemy, uh, by his enemies of the time. So don't dismiss him as just a drunk. Um, and there's a special history with one of the troops under his command, Francisco Villa, who trained as a Maderist officer in Huerta's army. And in March 1912 was almost shot for insubordination. Yeah, yeah. So Huerta's troops had just crushed an anti-government uprising in Chihuahua, led by reformer Pascual Orozco. So Villa, under Huerta, crushed one of these rebellions yeah. um, under Orozco and then uh, was insubordinate and Huerta was going to shoot him. <laughs> I'll tell you more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that story comes up again later. And I read the same things about uh, Huerta, you know, the... Uh, the uh, the historian focused on his his drinking and the fact that you you had to go hunt him down if you wanted to meet with him you had to go look for him because he was probably driving around town going to his favorite restaurants <laughs> living it up yeah yeah but the conservatives not only had a new frontman but they had an ally and that was US ambassador Henry Lane Wilson so this is the guy who came around to opposing Porfirio Diaz and contributed to his downfall and was friendly with Madero. But Wilson now basically came to detest Madero because he was letting so much damage be done to American property in the revolution. Wanted him to crack down much harder and obviously protect American property. Now, Wilson was a heavy drinker, and he was <laughs> he was also the worst kind of political meddler. He's an ambassador, but he has decided that Madero is a madman and a tyrant. Madero, a tyrant. Okay. Little, so little vegetarian Madero. Yeah, yeah. My so uh, Wilson threatened Mexico with foreign disapproval and possibly even American invasion. So I didn't realize that the ambassador had the power to launch an American invasion, but he's threatening uh, Mexico with it. So the U.S. State Department, when they hear about this, uh, they were alarmed by his actions, and President Taft actually disowned him. But, you know, too late for that. The damage has been done. It's interesting, this this little dynamic of um, Henry Lane Wilson, the U.S. ambassador, uh, not liking the president and creating a relationship with one of the generals and kind of elevating him eventually to overthrow yep. the president. This is like a real pattern. I, I The one that comes to my mind is Lumumba and Mobutu in um, Congo and the chief of station. 
Lawrence Devlin, but I guess there's probably this probably happens over and over again. Oh, every coup on. in every coup in Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so Madero is just deposed, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> One two punch, but an alliance of Huerta and Orozco. Uh, then Orozco has a revolt. Uh, they crush Orozco, and then Villa is imprisoned in 1912. Villa was one of only three men. Uh, Orozco and Gonzalez were the others who had the strength, prestige, and authority among of their own among the regional peasantry uh, and were able to capture Ciudad Juarez. They did so pro- partly. So when they were doing that, they did so partly by provoking the federal troops to attack them so they could present the attack to Madero as a necessary repost to enemy attack. So they really wanted to take Juarez. Madero told them not to. So they were like, oh, we were just defending ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were forced to take over the whole town. <laughs> Crazy how that happened. Um, so Villa and Orozco's men uh, told uh, that told the uh, their officers uh, that they were opposed to the Ciudad Juarez Accords and they wanted the land question dealt with. So Pancho Villa duly went to talk to the governor, who told him they had to wait until the government was installed and then buy some land. <laughs> so that was not what he wanted to hear. Uh, the peasant leaders left in disgust. Uh, meanwhile, Orozco tried to rise up uh, with the Empacadora plan, uh, Pact of uh, March 25th, 1912, acknowledged the San Luis and Ayala plans, accused Madero of taking American money, uh, seeking nationalization of railways, a 10-hour workday, an end to child labor, uh, workers' wage increases, land redistribution. So compensation, though, for landowners. He wanted to compensate landowners with with government bonds. Government bonds better than cash, right? Yeah. Uh, You get them to invest in the government. Um, When Huerta orders Pancho Villa shot, uh, Pancho Villa is saved by officers who could see that his execution would precipitate a violent reaction among the troops and population. So he's sent to prison, Lecumberri first, uh, where this book by Gilly was written, actually. (laughs) Then Santiago... Uh, Tlatelolco military prison on December 26th, when he sees Madero is going to be overthrown, he escapes prison and goes to the U.S. This escaping prison thing is uh, another recurring theme, and it leads it leads yeah. to the the ten tragic days. So the ten tra- tragic days start with uh, February 9th, 1913. So Felix Diaz, who who this is Porfirio's nephew, who launched a coup that failed. Uh, and General Bernardo Reyes, the two of them escaped from La Cumberi prison in Mexico City. And they tried another coup attempt and tried to capture the National Palace. Now, Reyes was killed in the attack, but Felix Diaz retreated to the Ciudadela, uh, an arsenal downtown. Now he's got weapons, including, I think, some artillery because he started bombarding federal targets and of course, hitting lots of civilians. Jesus, that's that's no way to win the people over. No, but I guess he was upset, so I'm <laughs> going to fire off the guns. So General Huerta, at this point, still supposedly loyal to Madero, made little effort to crush Diaz. He just basically let him do this. So instead... The conservatives and Ambassador Wilson uh, of the U.S. is is participating in this. They organized this this meeting, this uh, total farce. 
So Huerta negotiates with Diaz and they come to terms. And one of the terms they agree on is forcing Madero to resign. Uh, Gustavo Madero, the brother, was lured into a cafe by Huerta where he was murdered, brutally murdered. And then Francisco Madero, the, the leader, uh, was shot on the pretense that his supporters were staging an escape attempt. So this yeah. is a slight variation on the shot while trying to escape. Yeah, cop, cop story. This is fascinating. This really reminds me a lot of the Congo of the 60s, because that's what that's a lot yeah. of what the CIA chief of station was doing. He's he's or he's meeting with politicians, giving them cash, trying to create a coalition that can replace Lumumba. And yeah. then, you know, yeah, it's incredible. It's the real there's a real there's a real playbook somewhere. There's a real manual somewhere on how to do this. Um, so Gilly says, in the last analysis, Madero fell, as some of his own supporters predicted, because he had been powerless to stamp out Zapatismo. But instead of stopping the revolution, the Huerta coup was the signal for the flames of peasant war to engulf the whole country. So Gilly just sees it as like Madero could have been a useful tool for the upper classes in the U.S., but he couldn't. He was too weak to crush Zapatismo. So uh, Orozco then goes back to supporting General Huerta, who had crushed his movement in Chihuahua the year before. And from this point, Orozco, with his band of Colorados, was one of the fiercest defenders of the Huerta regime against Villa. Now, here's here's the story that I promised you about Orozco and Zapata. So Orozco tries to have a, a, a revolution of his own. He gets crushed by Huerta with Pancho Villa's help. Then he turns back. Then he goes back to General Huerta when General Huerta becomes uh, president or whatever. So now it, here's a quote. Here's a story from uh, <laughs> from Gilly. In furthering Huerta's ambitions of power, Orozco sent his own father to persuade Zapata that the struggle against Madero had triumphed and that he should now lay down his arms in support for his new government. In reply, Zapata erased Pascual Orozco's name from the Ayala plan and shot his father, the emissary, in order to show beyond doubt that he would not negotiate with traitors. Whoa. He shot the messenger, Dave. Wow. And they did a this is Sparta moment, you know? Wow. <laughs> I, Gilly's analysis is interesting. I, I see Madero falling not because of the Zapatista movement. Mm-hmm. The guys who, who turfed him out and ended up killing him are the conservatives that he tried to placate, that he tried to be nice to. If it he is, had kept I, the revolutionary forces, you yeah, know, exactly. and crushed exactly. that opposition, if he had... Yeah. You know, shut down the newspapers that were attacking him. Mm-hmm. Well, he he made his mistakes early, right? Allowing the provisional government to be in their hands and all that, yeah. all that stuff. So Huerta and and Felix Diaz had made a deal, uh, and Huerta had promised Diaz that he would quickly organize elections for Felix to run in. Instead, he made Diaz ambassador to Japan and shipped him out. 
Mexico's extremely important relations with Japan. Yeah, we need you there, guy. We need your talents. It's a very sensitive relationship. That needs needs to hear only your expertise can. can it, it's also pretty far. <laughs> now, Huerta's army is uh, basically the the federal army and still still weak. So they confined their operations to guarding railways. And and in a matter of, I don't know, weeks, months, uh, he managed to lose American support too. So uh, Wilson, uh, the different Wilson, sorry, this is President Woodrow Wilson, uh, who seems to have personally detested Huerta as a military dictator. So Wilson apparently said, I am going to teach the South American republics to elect good men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no irony. No, no, he's perfectly serious. I know. So as a step in this educational process, uh, Wilson sent American troops to occupy Veracruz. This was uh, part retaliation for the arrest of some American sailors by Huerta's men. And it was partly to cut off arms shipments to Huerta. But all Mexicans, including the revolutionaries, saw this as a gross infringement of Mexico's sovereignty. So it's almost like they called a timeout in the Revolutionary War. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we're all ticked off now at the end. Gringos, go home. We all agree. Yeah, we all agree. So uh, President Wilson said, we have gone down to Mexico to serve mankind if we can find out the way. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I still don't. still looking for it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this isn't the way. Uh, somehow revolutionary armies still got their weapons from across the border. Uh, by July of 1914, they were strong enough to force Huerta to resign. But the factions, and there are plenty of them, uh, were hopelessly divided. And so the next three years were spent in a civil war. There's no united government. The economy is disrupted. There were uh, serious food shortages in some areas. Yeah, yeah it's a bad, uh, it's a bad situation. I just, uh, it's, it's a little. It actually is a little, takes us a little off of the point. But there's a, there's a, the, the decentralization and the, there's a strong anarchist streak to, uh, to the urban Mexican revolution. Um, there's a lot of connections to the industrial workers of the world, the so-called Wobblies, which is a kind of an anarchist union. Um, and Flores Magón, we mentioned, like an anarchist newspaper guy. Uh, and Gilly, Gilly's pretty dismissive of all this. He says, you know, the trouble with the anarchists are that they lack any material instrument or organized forces in Mexico to bring its demands into practice. So <laughs> <laughs> other than that, though, you know. So they're not a they're not really a force to be reckoned with, uh, not despite yet, no. yeah, despite the fact that there's you know lots of sympathy to their to their uh, cause. But there are three uh, main factions. So the first one, the leader is Venustiano Carranza. Carranza is an old style uh, politico, but uh, modern enough to hire a Madison Avenue agency to handle his election publicity. Nice. Very modern, yeah. He called himself the first chief of the Constitutional Army, and he started issuing orders to the other revolutionaries. <laughs> uh, he had got to be bold, right? 
I, he he had that. He he had an old fashioned beard and he wore glasses and it made him look frailer than he actually was. Critics dismissed him as uh, a bourgeois mediocrity incarnate. <laughs> ah, they underestimated him. Oh, badly. Nice language, though. Uh, and Karanzov was stubborn. He was also not afraid to quarrel with the Americans, which he did repeatedly. So his his he got into special problems with uh, the other factions because oh, yeah. he starts off with a very anti-land reform uh, thing, which of necessity ends up changing, but I get ahead of myself. Um, So he does try to conciliate the peasants, but his main idea is get to Mexico City and rule from there. So he refuses to recognize General Huerta, and he formalizes the Guadalupe Plan of March 26, 1913, rejects the Huerta government, resolves to form a constitutionalist army with Carranza as commander-in-chief, and once they reach Mexico City, they will call a general election. So there's a group of uh, subaltern officers led by Captain Francisco Mujica. I think it's Mujica. It might be Mujica. I don't know. Uh, it's G instead of a J. Uh, and Gilly calls them the Jacobin wing and includes Lucio Blanco <laughs> and Obregón in the center. Obregón's an important name. Remember yes. his name. Uh, mediating between Mujica and Carranza. They ask for land redistribution and the abolition of the company shop. Carranza says, not right now. We need a big coalition for the military victory first and then uh, the social demands. Uh, so they, the, these, um, this so-called Jacobin wing wants land reform and Lucio Blanco, General Lucio Blanco takes over the Northern, uh, city of Matamoros in June of 1913 and orders Major Mujica to start a land redistribution, which he does. He expropriates an hacienda, redistributes the land and Carranza freaks out. Carranza says, tells Blanco to call off any further land redistribution, relieves him of command and transfers him to another zone. He replaces Blanco with Pablo Gonzalez, uh, the future butcher of peasants and organizer of Zapata's murder, whose military incompetence was so great that he became known as the general who never won a battle. So uh, they they replaced a good guy with a kind of a sleazy guy because of the land reform issue. Um, and then there's some discussion of like Sonora. There's a special role for Sonora State in the constitutionalist armies because uh, Sonora State fell into the revolution's hands by an election, right? There was a pro-revolutionary uh, governor who won and took the whole state with all the administration and everything intact over to the revolution. So he calls them the Prussians of Mexico's North, driving forward to conquer and unify the country during the first revolution and the successive governments of Huerta, Obregón, and Calles. So that's Carranza. In terms of his place on the spectrum, he's he's basically taking the Madero position of, I'm going to work with the conservatives. I'm going to offer a liberal. He keeps using the word constitution, constitutionalist, so there's that legalistic approach to everything, but it's quite clear that, uh, you know, land is going to have to wait and, and maybe it'll wait a, a long, long time. So he's going to reconcile with the conservatives and take that position. Only he's not as naive as, or trusting as Madero and he's willing to be uh, a lot more ruthless. The second faction, the second big faction is Via. So Francisco or Pancho Villa 
was actually born Jose Doroteo Arango Arambulo. And the reason he's such a controversial figure is, uh, well, his his life is, <laughs> he's he's half cowboy, half bandit. He was always emotional and impulsive. And it's hard to get the story of his early life because Villa told a number of conflicting stories about himself. Uh, at age 16, he tracked down and killed uh, a hacienda owner named Agustin Lopez Negrete, who had raped his sister. In 1898, he was arrested for gun and mule theft. In 1903, he killed an army officer and stole his horse. Uh, according to Wiki, his friends called him La Cucaracha, which is cockroach. And I don't know how that's an endearment. Maybe he just Survive. always seems to survive. Survivor, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And he seems to have been married several times, uh, usually without bothering with divorces <laughs> or annulments in between. So when he heard of Madero's assassination, uh, Villa rode into Chihuahua with eight men. And Huerta tried to recruit him. But Villa was not easily controlled, and actually Villa uh, struck Huerta. This is why he, he was sentenced to death by a firing squad. So he was uh, Huerta had him arrested for insubordination and theft, and he was going to be executed. But Villa appealed to generals Emilio Madero and Raul Madero. These are brothers of the president, and they intervened and delayed the execution until they could contact Madero by telegraph, and he ordered Huerta to spare via, but you know, but but imprison him. Don't don't execute him. Uh, Via's image, a lot of it came from being interviewed by John Reed. This is the American leftist journalist who, who also went to the Bolshevik revolution. Yeah, he also went to Russia to interview Bolshevik revolutionaries. Uh, but the interview uh, helped shape. Via's image in the U.S. They saw him as a sort of Robin Hood. Uh, he robbed a train, taking 122 silver bars from Wells Fargo. He confiscated money from banks. He he held wealthy landowners for ransom. So he's definitely a, a crook, a bandit. But he's also building up a, an effective revolutionary army, the División del Norte. By October of 1913, he had an army of 10,000 men. And he seems to have been, in one sense, on the same page as Zapata. They had a, an unstable alliance. They both disliked middle-class revolutionaries, men who always slept on pillows. So this seems to apply both to you know Madero and Carranza. Villa found Carranza impossibly arrogant. And, and thought he was surrounded by politicians intent on feathering their own nests. And Villa claimed that he was defending the rights of the people against a would-be dictator. So you can imagine to Gilly, Pancho Villa is a big deal. <laughs> oh, he's a big deal, period. <laughs> so uh, Gilly says the Northern Division, so this is basically the army created and um, you know commanded by Villa, was one of the greatest historical achievements of the Mexican subaltern classes, its emergence a turning point in the peasant war and the revolution. They created this army out of nothing, 
sweeping everything in their path and hoisting one from their own ranks as the main military leader of the revolution. Villa, unlike uh, Zapata, who has that Ayala plan, Villa doesn't even have a plan. Uh, everybody has a plan, right? Everybody has a plan yeah, or a no, pact not or him. whatever. Villa doesn't have one. Uh, he's held, He holds his movement together as the best soldier, horseman, and countryman. He raised to a heroic level the characteristic features of them all. Courage, hatred and mistrust of the exploiters, implacability and cruelty in battle, astuteness and candor, tenderness and solidarity towards the poor and oppressed and gilly also adds instability (laughs) (laughs) the very things the bourgeois hated about him were the very features he needed to guide and command his army since via more than any other figure in the revolution spread terror among the ruling classes the denigration of him is merely an inverted reflection of fear and gilly points out that like the same people who uh, you know, who are massacring peasants, half of the peasants in the Zapatista zone um, are being either deported or killed, mm. uh, are calling Pancho Villa a bandit and terror terrorizer, right? Yeah. So Gilly continues, a magnificent fighter and organizer, Pancho Villa is a nightmarish memory for the Mexican ruling classes. He taught that the federal army was not invincible in a civil war. The bourgeoisie can tolerate and even forget this from one of its own, but it can never forgive it from an ex-peon born on its old haciendas, a peasant turned bandit who, though he received hardly any basic schooling, mastered to perfection the arts of horsemanship, agriculture, and weaponry, who, though learning to write only in prison, displayed a lightning organizational mind, who had unpredictable reactions and spread them among powerful enemy forces unknown to the bourgeoisie. Such a man appeared to be the embodiment of absolute evil. So the worst thing that he proved, according to Gilly, was that nothing the ruling classes considered vitally necessary was, in fact, indispensable. So, like, peasants can do a lot for themselves. Um, And Villa's also a master of organization. He could make full use of the train to organize supplies, obtain funds and military equipment from the appropriate places, and ensure that wounded soldiers were speedily evacuated to the rear. He showed great vigor and audacity in the maneuvers of battle had an inborn grasp of the economy of forces and a concern for the fighting and living conditions of his troops, which the federal officers just use troops as cannon fodder, right? So Mm -hmm. peasants who fight for Villa know that he's not going to throw their lives away, which actually makes them more courageous when the chips are down. Um, Wherever Villa went, prison doors were opened, pawn shops were closed, land reform happened. The peasants told him everything, so he had an intelligence network that consisted of basically everybody (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so while the peasants are on the upsurge it was invincible and zapatista was remember zapata was already independent villa was working for the um you know carranza right nominally Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so the bourgeois and Petty bourgeois leaders of the revolution anticipated with dread a junction between Villa's peasant army swooping from the north and Zapata's peasant army closing in on Mexico City from the south. They knew that the alliance would defeat Huerta, but also expose them to the unpredictable dangers of an alien and hostile force, the revolutionary peasantry. But they couldn't stop them. It was too strong. Events were going too fast for the bourgeois to catch up. So remember, um, 
there's a dispute. The reason Madero and Huerta had a dispute was what's the better way to crush Zapata, right? Madero says, let's conciliate because if we attack, we'll just make more uh, revolution against us. Mm-hmm. And Huerta says, let's attack because if we don't attack now, it'll only grow and make things worse for us. So Gilly says, you know, it's they're both right. <laughs> Um, and really what it was going to happen regardless of what they did, because that's, you know, the kind of the time, the moment had come in a way. So Pancho Villa crosses into Chihuahua from the U.S. in March 1913 and organizes a peasant uh, brigade, which will become the uh, Northern Division. So he has, uh, you know, different officers coming from some of them come from the army and some of them come from the peasants. Uh, and other places. Uh, so he's one of thir- three armies. There's the Northeast Army under this general who never wins, General Pablo Gonzalez, and the Northwest Army commanded by Alvaro Obregón. So Obregón uh, uses the Pacific Railway. Villa uses the Central Railway. And so these these two are very active. Gonzalez doesn't do much. Um, no. And Carranza makes sure that Pancho Villa's division is called a division. <laughs> And every the other two are called armies. So there's this mm. petty, this petty thing with Villa, where you know Villa's got the strongest army, and they call it a division. Um, <clears throat> so in October uh, 1913, Villa takes the railway junction of Torreón. Um, Huerta is growing his army. The Federales uh, grow to 85,000, and then by a year later, 200,000. There may be some phantom soldiers going on there. (laughs) Might not be a fighting force of 200,000. He dissolves Congress, calls elections for October 27th and wins. Um, Carranza has declared a provisional government. um, And he says the federal army will be dissolved after victory. So that's the difference with Madero, right? Mm -hmm. Madero says he's Madero kept the army intact and got overthrown. Carranza will will dissolve the federal army if he wins, he says. So here's a cool tactic that Villa does, okay? Uh, He prepares to take Chihuahua. So he starts with a forced march to Ciudad Juarez, and on his way to Ciudad Juarez, he seizes a train. He captures the telegraph operator and has him send a message to Ciudad Juarez. So they're heading to Ciudad Juarez, and uh, they say, "The the track is cut. What should we do? So the federal command at the station in Juarez says, well, turn the train around and come back and cable us with your position at each station. We're worried now because Villa's in the area. So Villa climbs onto the train with 2,000 men and cavalry following and cables them from each station, (laughs) telling them, okay, uh, we're at this station. And and so they're they're, there. they, they know that the train is coming, but they don't realize that the train is full of Pancho Villa's troops. So they come, they get off the train at Ciudad Juarez, and they take uh, they take the town pretty easily. The Federales counterattack in November. Uh, he defeats them in battle at Tierra Blanca. He occupies Chihuahua on December 8th without a fight. Um, he loses the town of Torreón, which, which the Federales took back because he's left. Um, but then Villa has another big battle, January 1914, at Ojinaga, um, and they have the whole state by March of 1914. They're readying to go south. Obregón has taken uh, the capital of Sinaloa, and then he chills. <laughs> so Villa goes back, takes Torreón back, um, and, 
you know, John Reed describes a kind of a carnival almost. Um, Gilly writes, although the Vist advance had an appearance of great disorder, its actions displayed a higher order than any military regulations. Victory meant land. There will be no more poor and rich after the revolution. We will all live in peace. We will have the land. There will be no exploiters. That's uh, from, this is Gilly quoting more or less from John Reed's book, Insurgent Mexico. So now Carranza has a problem. Villa is winning, but if Villa wins, then it could be a peasant takeover. So now how does he, how does he beat Huerta and also stop Villa from taking the capital? So he starts sending orders to Villa to do other stuff, take Saltillo, which he does. He's trying to delay uh, Villa from getting to the capital so that uh, someone else can can take it instead. Um, and finally, uh, Pancho Villa basically disobeys an order to to uh, not take the city of Zacatecas. He takes it in spite of Carranza's order, and then um, Carranza's really mad. <laughs> so Carranza stops fighting Huerta basically and and starts to figure out how to fight try to start trying to work out how to fight Villa. He dismisses yeah. Villa's ally Felipe Ángeles. So Felipe Ángeles is another important name. General Felipe Ángeles is like basically Villa Pancho Villa's second in command and he's like tr- classically trained as a military officer. So there's a lot of strategic debates between Villa and Ángeles and uh it's very interesting because right now Ángeles is um, not really is advising Villa to do differently than what he's doing, and Villa's ignoring the advice. And then later on, uh, Gilly, Gilly kind of wishes that Villa had followed the advice. So I'll, I'll tell you more. But um, Felipe Ángeles is kind of instrumental in forcing the Carranza and Villa to make a deal. Um, they have the Torreón Pact, where they recognize each other, they promise they're going to stop fighting, <laughs> etc., um, and Carranza just sees it as a delaying tactic. So he gets Obregón into Mexico City first. Yeah, and this is where uh, Villa's limitations are exposed. Yeah. And, I mean, and he's, doing, he's doing the heavy lifting. He's doing the fight. Yeah. So yeah. Carranza's not going to be able to win without Villa. But exactly. Villa's not thinking of, you know, marching on Mexico City and taking over himself no. And and getting rid of Carranza because he, he just, doesn't. That's not, yeah. I mean, his followers are are cowboys and peasants, right? Yeah. If, if I take over, how do I do things? <laughs> he doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. No. It's a no. crazy. Yeah. So Carranza's army uh, officers set up in the landowners' houses. Gilly writes they'd use their silverware, drank their wine, and were attended by their servants. Those families with the most initiative tried to arrange marriages for their daughters. This is not how Pancho Villa's officers behave. No, no. <laughs> he calls it an unbridgeable class abyss. So anyway, Huerta is gone. Um, Huerta hands authority over to Francisco Carvajal on July 15th, uh, who then in turn surrenders uh, to Mexico City on the 25th of July. So Obregón moves in. The federales surrender. Obregón sets up defensive positions to block Zapata. So yeah, your ally. <laughs> so step one, prevent Zapata from getting in here. Uh, so Zapata goes up north. They meet basically at Cuernavaca, and they're uh, they're just basically 
trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> That's really close to Mexico it's City. Very close. <laughs> so Obregón is clever. He abolishes the employer's shops, cancels debts, eight-hour workday, minimum wage, and the workers' unions start up again. Um, the question of land, though, uh, not not uh, not no not yet. not now <laughs> not right now. Thank you. Uh, in Zapata's zone, meanwhile, they're they've basically completed the land reform. The land is all uh, back in the peasants' hands and uh, wherever they control. So now uh, we have the Carranza versus Zapata problem. So Carranza gets to Mexico City and they start long rounds of mediation with Zapata. Zapata says you have to legalize the peasants' land. Carranza says no, there's property rights for the hacienda owners. You cannot distribute what you do not own. That's what he tells Zapata. <laughs> and Zapata's not happy with this. Um, he said he they issue a call to the Mexican people. They say the peasantry took to revolt not in order to conquer illusory political rights that give it nothing to eat, but for the patch of land that should provide food and freedom. The armed groups the plan is for the armed groups to appoint an interim president who adopts the Ayala plan. Otherwise, the armed struggle continues. And in this period, there's a famous correspondence between uh, one of the Zapatista generals, who later becomes the agriculture minister, General Manuel Palafox, and a wealthy utopian uh, named Atenor Sala. So Atenor Sala says, look, uh, Palafox, let's have land reform, but let's have the government compensate people who lose their land. And Palafox writes a famous letter to um, to Sala on the 3rd of September 1914, where he says, no, expropriation without compensation, because compensation would require more money than our unhappy country has at its disposal. And anyway, it's unjust to compensate enemies for land they obtained illegally. Money is not needed to return the land which someone took from another with support of a bad government, he writes. He believes in compensating foreigners who stayed out of politics, which doesn't include the U.S., <laughs> no. but those people will be com co compensated with money appropriated from the enemies of the revolution anyway. Uh, and it and and he also like Salah says, like, let's make a nation of small holders. And uh, Palafox says, no, if the villagers want collective land, then they should get collective land. Um and and the ultimate guarantor of this, Palafox says, is the armed people. He says, any bourgeois who seeks to acquire their confiscated property with the help of some government in the future will not succeed because the villages with arms in hand, arms they will always retain, will be able energetically to impose their will on the government and protect their rights. So, again, um, Optimistic in this age of industrial warfare, right? That like mm. your small arms can do that. But uh, he also says something pretty, <laughs> pretty stark, which I don't even think Lenin said, but it's it's brutal uh, and deserves to be quoted. He says, it is better for humanity that thousands of bourgeois rather than millions of proletarians should die of hunger. <laughs> that is what moral sense tells us. <laughs> it's not like they'd have to die of hunger. <laughs> you could give them something, right? Wow. But, uh, September 8th, 1914, they issue a decree along these lines at Cuernavaca, nationalization of land without uh, compensation, and it won't be alienated. So that's the Z Carranza Zapata dispute. Yeah. So your third big faction is Zapata. And at this point, he doesn't trust Carranza at all. 
Yeah. I mean, he he caught, he was willing to give Madero a chance, but he doesn't think Carranza has any serious interest in redistributing land. And he suspects that, you know, Carranza is going to set up a legal government and that's going to be the end of the rule of the men of the South. At this point, Morelos is, is in near anarchy, dominated by by young revolutionary generals. Uh, Zapata's brother is is in total command of the railway, and there's there's quite a bit of chaos. And a lot of these guys are, um, uh, well, young, ambitious men without much education. So there's a story uh, that comes out of this period of the revolution. Apparently, one of uh, the junior officers saw the pay sheet for his men, and he could read, so he read it. But he was very, very angry. He was looking at each man's name and the amount he had been paid. And the officer said, who is this man total who makes more than anybody else? <laughs> he makes the exact amount that everybody combined makes. This is unfair. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to me, that's another apocryphal story with that uh, Cientificos Mexico City attitude that these are all, yeah. you know, semi-illiterate, yeah. uh, unintelligent fools so zapata is now going to use guerrilla warfare against carranza's forces and carranza is going to reply with the traditional scorched earth tactics and while they're fighting there were attempts to reach a settlement between the factions uh they even you know tried to schedule a convention to reconcile the the feuding chiefs but it's not about only you know the the personalities of yeah of the chiefs a little deeper <laughs> yeah so meanwhile uh, Carranza and Villa are now headed for a split uh, Villa is keeping his army together by selling cattle uh, cotton and textiles and by taxing horse races bars and brothels in Juarez but Villa drew the line at the drug trade he did not want to profit from the drug trade and even cooperated with the Americans in their war on drugs. Yeah, the war on drugs goes back a long, long way. Now, I got a different impression of him as a strategist and a general. Um, he, he has been accused of simply throwing his troops into combat regardless of the cost. He's, he's very aggressive and he doesn't shy away from risking battle. So it won him a big victory at Torreon in April of 1914, uh, considered the fiercest battle of the revolution. But he also made a mistake when he broke with uh, Alvaro Obregón, who's considered one of the best revolutionary generals. And Obregón turned against him. It, it's hardly surprising since Villa <laughs> threatened to shoot him. I have details. <laughs> okay. So Obregón visited Villa twice, despite you know, rumors that he was going to be assassinated. And they agreed that land reform and land for the revolutionaries were key issues. This is one of Madero's failings, right? That he didn't reward his followers who expected to to profit from the victory. Uh, but they also agreed, Obregón and Villa, that military officers should be barred from holding high political office and and that a new national congress should make laws benefiting the poor. <laughs> this is very is vague. Obergod, is Obergod going to hold on to this? Stuff? Uh, <laughs> this just about great... as much as Porfirio Diaz did. <laughs> I think he meant you should be barred from holding up. 
unconscious. Yeah, well, that's uh, certainly what he intended. Yeah. <laughs> so Obregon, man, he's a very interesting guy, right? He comes off as so shrewd. Like, he comes out of the story looking so shrewd. It's it's It kind of reminds me of Stalin, where, like, Stalin and Trotsky have these debates. We're going to get into that, I guess, in a year or two. <laughs> this Maybe. <laughs> but Stalin and Trotsky have these military debates about how to go about things. And Stalin says, you know, we should have a peasant guerrilla army, whatever. And Trotsky says, no, we absolutely have to modernize the army, whatever the cost. And then, you know, Stalin, I guess, loses the debate. But then later on Trotsky gets killed and everything by Stalin and then Stalin's like we have to modernize the army whatever the cost right <laughs> so they're these guys are very capable of assimilating the the messages that they once rejected um, including from their worst enemies so Obregon um, is leaning on Villa he's trying to bring him back into the fold Meanwhile, he's also using Carranza to try to break Villa's power. So he's he's uh, he's a player in this game. He goes to Chihuahua. The, so here's the story of how Obregón almost got shot. <clears throat> he goes to Chihuahua, and he's sort of feeling out Villa's officers to see whether they were really loyal to Villa, uh-huh, uh-huh. trying to gain influence among some of them, and directly assessing the military strength and state of mind of the Northern Division. Gilly says this is a kind of factional activity in which nothing less than his own skin was at stake. So Villa is uh, is also no no slouch in the shrewdness department, and he sees what's up. So he gets the fire. He he gets he goes so far as to get the firing squad assembled. Um, so he's got him. He's got the firing squad assembled, and then he he sort of changes his mind. He says, "Ah, this could this could get us in hot water with Carranza, and it'll be a big reputational hit and everything." So he changes his mind and invites him to dinner, <laughs> <laughs> where where he's the guest of honor. Yeah. And Obregón is cute, cool as a cucumber. He goes to the dinner; it's all fine. Um, so that they get this telegram together. Yeah, they they put their plan uh, into a petition. Yeah, and then they sent it to Carranza, uh, yeah. September twenty first, nineteen fourteen, and then Obregón leaves, and Carranza sent his answer by telegram, and it was rejection. <laughs> so Villa's just like, what the hell was that? Was that all orchestrated, right? By Obregón, he gets me to agree to something, and then takes off before the answer comes back, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, well, bring the guy back. I'm going to shoot him after all. <laughs> <laughs> but the officers that Via orders, they basically don't do it. So they let uh, Obregón go uh, because, um, you know, they don't, they just, they kind of, either they liked Obregón a little bit, they didn't think it was right. Uh, they also were like, we put this guy up, we made him our guest, we can't just shoot him now. So, uh so the way that via, I mean, the way that Gilly says, Gilly says the whole of this famous episode sums up well the political instability of Pancho Villa. So political instability means that he's not ruthless enough to go all the way. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's right, that's right. And, okay. and and he, but he's 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 ru- he's ruthless enough to to let the other guy know that he wants to shoot him. <laughs> so he kind of gets the worst of both worlds, right? Because you're. You know, if you're if you're not going to shoot him, better not to say you're going to shoot him. Yeah. 
So Obregón's, uh, yeah, like you say, a very interesting guy. He he originally supported Madero. He led the Revolutionary Army in Sonora against Huerta. He he tried to mediate between Carranza and Villa, but uh, chose Carranza in the end. Uh, one writer suggests that you know Villa wanted Obregón to join him against Carranza, but Obregón refused. It's that Hollywood moment, you know. I want. I, I guess was hoping you would join us. No, no, no. Obregon goes never. Um, so the thing is, Obregon knows that if they fight now, Villa wins. Right. Um, and Villa wins for two reasons. Villa wins because he's got the best army, and Villa wins because uh, the peasants love Villa's land emphasis so, right but Obregon Obregon would need Villa to take power himself yeah yeah and that might not work well want, yeah he doesn't want that so so Obregon's idea then is eventually forms in his head that if he if they do take if Carranza does take power he's gonna have to adopt some of what Villa's policies are well i think obregon's thinking uh, me and via wouldn't work but if i could replace via yeah then carranza would need me yes yes exactly yeah so despite the the break between via and carranza uh, revolutionary leaders were still trying to resolve their differences and have a meeting and let's all sit down and you know chart the way forward so they they made an agreement in the Treaty of Torreon, right. and they met uh, at Aguascalientes, 5th of October, 1914. Right. Carranza didn't participate because he wasn't a general, so that's a weird way to approach it. But Obregón did, and they they split really really fast. They split into two factions: the Carranza supporters, who insisted that they should follow the the plan of Guadalupe and restore the constitution and the VIA supporters who wanted much more wide ranging social reforms than the plan of Guadalupe included. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the the debate at this meeting was won by the VIA and Zapata supporters. Yeah. Carranza just refused to accept it. So he he said the preparations for a pre-constitutional regime were completely inadequate, and Obregón decided to stick with Carranza. Yeah, so Zapata wasn't going to go. The Zapata wasn't going to send a delegation, but Villa sent a delegation to ask them to go. So the Zapatistas oh, okay. show up three weeks after the convention starts, make their dramatic entrance. Uh, which basically means that their nightmare has happened, right? Villa and Zapata have basically made their connection. Um, the Carranza people were essentially forced to accept most of the articles of the Ayala plan at the convention, but then Carranza was like, no. Um, and then there's a funny thing where they also, at this convention, they come to be known as the conventionists. So it's conventionists against the constitutionalists right? right so the conventionists also say Carranza has to retire <laughs> so Carranza says I'll retire when Villa and Zapata resign so on October 30th the convention approves a motion that Carranza and Villa both resign 
<laughs> they declare this general Eulalio Gutierrez uh, interim president of the republic on November 1st. And on November 3rd, Villa says, listen, why don't we just have a motion that Carranza and Villa, me, <laughs> get shot at the same time? <laughs> so everybody applauds. <laughs> So, carnival atmosphere continues, right? November 10th, Gutierrez declares Carranza a rebel and puts Villa in charge of the armies. Obregón goes and joins Carranza. So now it's Carranza Obregón, the constitutionalists, against Villa and Zapata, the conventionalists. And the conventionalists have Gutierrez as their president. So Carranza takes off. He's uh, time to get time to go. He leaves Mexico City for Veracruz and uh, declares. Just, yeah, yeah, just a point there. Veracruz is where the Americans are. Yeah. And that's where you get your weapon shipments. Exactly. So he goes to Veracruz and declares Villa and Gutierrez rebels on November 12th. They declare him a rebel. Uh, they've declared him a rebel already. So on December 3rd, Villa's Northern Division moves into Mexico City from the north, and Zapata follows a day later to Mexico City from the south on December 4th. So they have their historic meeting uh, in the south of Mexico City at a place called Xochimilco, uh, which is very much a part of the gigantic thing that is Mexico City today. <laughs> I've been to Xochimilco. Um, and and they have a deck. Uh, Gilly says, in December 1914, the armed peasants were masters of Mexico and its seat of power, the National Palace in the capital of the Republic. So the bourgeois were, of course, terrified that the peasants would sack, you know, the sack of Rome. They didn't sack uh, the city. Uh, there were some settling of scores with some particular rich people, but there was mostly uh, calm. Uh, Gilly says there was no looting and the troops neither committed excesses nor provoked disorders. Their discipline owed more to a basic feeling of solidarity with the workers and the poor of Mexico than to any existing army regulations. There was disorder from the officers who were living it up in bars and restaurants and, yeah. and misbehaving. <laughs> so here's the real problem. The limitations of Zapata and Villa when they're trying to think of how to administer Mexico in a post-revolutionary situation. So this is just, they're just, they just can't. <laughs> so they, the, their, Gilly tells the story, I think it's some, one of the ministers writes a memoir, Guzman is his name. So Guzman writes the story of, he's with Gutierrez and they're being given a tour of the national palace by Zapata's brother. So Zapata's brother shows him around, shows him the chair, the president's chair, the president's office, and uh, and eventually takes them down to the stables where he's much more comfortable and the, you know, the quarters of the stable hands where they're staying. And he says, since I've always been poor, I wouldn't be able to live in bigger rooms. Mm. So it's kind of like, uh, <clears throat> and there's also a transcript of part of the meeting between Villa and Zapata in Xochimilco. So some some lines of their dialogue. Villa says, it's very clear to me that we ignorant men make the war and the cultured people have to make use of it, but they should not give us any trouble. Zapata says the men who have worked the most have the least chance to enjoy those city sidewalks. As for me, each time I walk over these sidewalks, I feel like I'm tumbling down. And Villa says, yeah, this ranch is too big for us. It's better out there. As soon as this business is sorted out, I'll be off north to the country. I've got a lot to do up there and the people will fight hard. So there's a lot of signaling like, hey, I don't want power. 
do you want power? No, I don't want power, right? That mm -hmm. seems to be the subtext. And Gilly says, this dialogue contains the seeds of both political and military defeat. Unable to keep power in their hands, the two leaders are prepared to hand it over. They therefore give up the idea of a centralized army, which would require a centralized state power, and decide to forsake the center that is already in their hands. Each will return to fight in his own region, whose horizon they have not been able to transcend in a vision of the nation. As Villa puts it, this ranch is too big for us. It's better out there. So Gutierrez uh, basically sabotages their military effort. So uh, their their main focus of Gutierrez is to supply has how not to supply uh, Villa and Zapata when they're fighting uh, Carranza. And so um, one quote from this Guzman, who was one of the minister ministers, he said, "I used all imaginable resources to avoid supplying them with guns, bullets, and ammunition." Uh, everything went very well as I convinced them that the arms, explosives, and ammunition factories did not provide a hundredth of what we needed, and they were very pleased with themselves over this. There's also the uh, General Banderas incident. <laughs> so General Banderas, under Pancho Villa, was looking for the Secretary of Education, Jose Vasconcelos, and he was it was all known all over Mexico City that if General Banderas found the Secretary of Education, he was going to shoot him. Why? Vasconcelos is a lawyer. When Banderas was in jail as a rebel, or before the revolution, uh, Vasconcelos had taken his family's money and said he was going to get him out of jail and didn't even bother to show up anymore. So he just kind of shook him down for money, right? Um, and Villa says, listen, Banderas, this is petty. Don't provoke a government crisis over this. And Banderas says, no, I'm going to shoot him because he has no honor and such a person shouldn't be in the government. Good point. <laughs> so Villa summons Vasconcelos and says, listen, why don't you just leave town? <laughs> so Vasconcelos leaves town and President Gutierrez is horrified. And he says, you know, what kind of government is this where, you know, the general runs somebody out of town, runs a government official out of town at pistol point? And Villa says, maybe you shouldn't appoint such people <laughs> to your government. And eventually it breaks down where Villa says, by the way, like, you're now a prisoner of mine and you better not try to escape. And uh, Gutierrez does. Gutierrez tells him, I'll escape if I have to leave on the back of a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty bad. It breaks down. Gutierrez basically goes over to Obregón in uh, January of 1915. So Gilly's assessment is this. He says, because they um, were so everything they thought of was in terms of decentralization of power, geography, Villa and Zapata's armies converted all the advantages of their central position into disadvantages, completely dispersing their forces on several fronts against secondary enemies. Nothing could have been greater of greater benefit to the weakened constitutionalist center in Veracruz, which needed time for both military and political reorganization. So General Angeles, who I told you he'd come from military school, he told Villa, please, let's put our armies together, go to Veracruz and smash Carranza. Everything else will fall into their laps, to our laps. Villa says, no, <clears throat> the base is the north. My base is the north and I don't want to go that far from my base. And Angeles said, no, your base is Mexico City now, man. Your base is not the north anymore. And Zapata's the same. He's, uh, he... He says, you know, no, we're the army of the South. So Veracruz is our problem. 
Um, but his army's not as good as Villa's. He couldn't beat Carranza's on its own. No. No. And and so he says, uh, thus at a time, Gilly says, when the peasant armies could and should have concentrated all their strength on the annihilation of the army center in Veracruz, their allotted task of protecting long supply lines and fighting in their respective zones inevitably led to dispersion. Um, one military historian, who's also a general, Francisco Grajales, he said, the absurd dispersal of forces stemming from Zapata's obtuse criteria of localist jurisdiction brought a miraculous salvation for the constitutionalist side. And then Carranza does something very smart, which is co-opt a lot of what Villa and Zapata are saying. So um, he says, he says, uh, you know, land, re yes, we're going to do land redistribution. Um, we're, you know, we just need you to have the deeds, whatever, but it's a, it's a halfway between what, what Villa and Zapata are proposing. And, uh, and he, he says, you know, it's actually Pancho Villa that's the reactionary. Um, and uh, and we need to stop him and implement the revolutionary principles that the Mexican people fought for. So Gilly says, you know, look, they had to they had to adopt some of their policies in order to beat them. He says all of the opposing factions of the revolution had to recognize principles which essentially proclaimed the irreversible triumph of its initial objectives. So... Um, between that and the, the kind of morale and like de demonstration that was involved in peasants taking over the capital, he says that was a historical divide more important than all the laws, votes and debates of all the congresses and conventions of those times. So, so there, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting that Carranza is able to appeal to Villa and Zapata supporters. Yeah. by promising land redistribution whereas Villa and Zapata never figured out you and have to offer workers. something yeah to the middle class and the upper class and you have to administer it doesn't have to be exactly what they want but it has to be something yeah yeah they didn't have a conception of like how to administer so they just said well we'll just trust whoever comes and the people they trusted betrayed them Sneaky. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the like the French Revolution, right? They they did French and the Bolsheviks. They had this commissar system for dealing with that, where they said, OK, we will use you. We will reward you, but we will watch you. <laughs> and uh, I guess they could do that because they had a party and Zapata and Villa didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they also never gave any thought to the, the future form of the government they exactly a bit naive like madero to figure that okay we'll just get a government that that will give us what we want yeah yeah and if we don't we'll fight them yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's not it's not yeah it, there's there's a lot of instruments besides fighting that that go into this all right I, well can yeah go ahead i was just gonna say we 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 are not done we have uh we have some downhill. <laughs> we have some downhill from here. We've we've peaked. Uh, we peaked with the taking of the capital, but uh, we the down the downfall is not uh, all bad news. There's some interesting. There's a lot more interesting stuff that happens. What do you think? I agree. <laughs> <laughs>